Chapter Two, Part Three, of the Formation of Vegetable Moulds Through the Action of Worms, with Observations on Their Habits, by Charles Darwin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two, Part Three, Habits of Worms, Continued. Means by which worms excavate their burrows. This is effected in two ways by pushing away the earth on all sides and by swallowing it. In the former case, the worm inserts the stretched out and attenuated anterior extremity of its body into any little crevice or hole. And then, as Perrier remarks, footnote, Archive de Zoologie Experimentale, Volume 3, 1874, page 405, end of footnote, the pharynx is pushed forwards into this part, which consequently swells and pushes away the earth on all sides. The anterior extremity thus serves as a wedge. It also serves, as we have seen before, for prehension and suction, and as a tactile organ. A worm was placed on loose mould, and it buried itself in between two and three minutes. On another occasion, four worms disappeared in fifteen minutes, between the sides of the pot and the earth, which had been moderately pressed down. On a third occasion, three large worms and a small one were placed on loose mould well mixed with fine sand and firmly pressed down, and they all disappeared, except the tail of one, in thirty-five minutes. On a fourth occasion, six large worms were placed on argillaceous mud mixed with sand firmly pressed down, and they disappeared, except the extreme tips of the tails of two of them, in forty minutes. In none of these cases did the worms swallow, as far as could be seen, any earth. They generally entered the ground close to the sides of the pot. A pot was next filled with very fine ferruginous sand, which was pressed down, well watered, and thus rendered extremely compact. A large worm left on the surface did not succeed in penetrating it for some hours, and did not bury itself completely until twenty-five hours forty minutes had elapsed. This was effected by the sand being swallowed, as was evident by the large quantity ejected from the vent, long before the whole body had disappeared. Castings of a similar nature continued to be ejected from the burrow during the whole of the following day. As doubts have been expressed by some writers, whether worms ever swallow earth solely for the sake of making their burrows, some additional cases may be given. A mass of fine reddish sand, twenty-three inches in thickness, left on the ground for nearly two years, had been penetrated in many places by worms, and their castings consisted partly of the reddish sand and partly of black earth brought up from beneath the mass. This sand had been dug up from a considerable depth, and was of so poor a nature that weeds could not grow on it. It is therefore highly improbable that it should have been swallowed by the worms as food. Again, in a field near my house, the castings frequently consisted of almost pure chalk, which lies at only a little depth beneath the surface, and here again it is very improbable that the chalk should have been swallowed for the sake of the very little organic matter which could have percolated into it from the poor overlying pasture. Lastly, a casting thrown up through the concrete and decayed mortar between the tiles, with which the now ruined aisle of Bolio Abbey had formerly been paved, was washed, so that the coarser matter alone was left. This consisted of grains of quartz, micaceous slate, other rocks, 
and bricks or tiles, many of them from one twentieth to one tenth inch in diameter. No one will suppose that these grains were swallowed as food, yet they formed more than half of the casting, for they weighed nineteen grams, the whole casting having weighed thirty-three grams. Whenever a worm burrows to a depth of some feet in undisturbed compact ground, it must form its passage by swallowing the earth, for it is incredible that the ground could yield on all sides to the pressure of the pharynx when pushed forwards within the worm's body. That worms swallow a larger quantity of earth for the sake of extracting any nutritious matter which it may contain than for making their burrows appears to me certain, but, as this old belief has been doubted by so high an authority as Claparede, evidence in its favour must be given in some detail. There is no a priori improbability in such a belief, for, besides other annelids, especially the Arenicola marina, which throws up such a profusion of castings on our tidal sands, and which it is believed thus subsists, there are animals belonging to the most distinct classes which do not burrow, but habitually swallow large quantities of sand, namely, the molluscan onchidium, and many echinoderms. I state this on the authority of Semper. Footnote. Riesen im Archipel der Philippinen. Chapter 2. 1877. Page 30. End of footnote. If earth were swallowed only when worms deepened their burrows, or made new ones, castings would be thrown up only occasionally. But in many places fresh castings may be seen every morning, and the amount of earth ejected from the same burrow on successive days is large. Yet, worms do not burrow to a great depth, except when the weather is very dry or intensely cold. On my lawn, the black vegetable mold, or humus, is only about five inches in thickness, and overlies light-colored or reddish clayey soil. Now, when castings are thrown up in the greatest profusion, only a small proportion are light-colored, and it is incredible that the worm should daily make fresh burrows in every direction in the thin superficial layer of dark-colored mold, unless they obtained nutriment of some kind from it. I have observed a strictly analogous case in a field near my house where bright red clay lay close beneath the surface. Again, on one part of the downs near Winchester, the vegetable mold overlying the chalk was found to be only from three to four inches in thickness, and the many castings here ejected were as black as ink, and did not effervesce with acids, so that the worms must have confined themselves to this thin, superficial layer of mold, of which large quantities were daily swallowed. In another place, at no great distance, the castings were white, and why the worms should have burrowed into the chalk in some places and not in others, I am unable to conjecture. Two great piles of leaves had been left to decay in my grounds, and the months after their removal, the bare surface, several yards in diameter, was so thickly covered during several months with castings that they formed an almost continuous layer and the large number of worms which lived here must have subsisted during these months on nutritious matter contained in the black earth. The lowest layer from another pile of decayed leaves, mixed with some earth, was examined under a high power, and the number of spores of various shapes and sizes which it contained was astonishingly great, and these crushed in the gizzards of worms may largely aid in supporting them. Whenever castings are thrown up in the greatest number, few or no leaves are drawn into the burrows. For instance, 
the turf along a hedgerow about two hundred yards in length was daily observed in the autumn during several weeks and every morning many fresh castings were seen but not a single leaf was drawn into these burrows these castings from their blackness and from the nature of the subsoil could not have been brought up from a greater depth than six or eight inches on what could these worms have subsisted during this whole time if not on matter contained in the black earth on the other hand whenever a large number of leaves are drawn into the burrows the worms seem to subsist chiefly on them for few earth castings are then ejected on the surface this difference in the behavior of worms at different times perhaps explains a statement by Clapared, namely that triturated leaves and earth are always found in distinct parts of their intestines worms sometimes abound in places where they can rarely or never obtain dead or living leaves for instance beneath the pavement in well-swept courtyards into which leaves are only occasionally blown my son horace examined a house one corner of which had subsided and he found here in the cellar which was extremely damp many small worm castings thrown up between the stones with which the cellar was paved and in this case it is improbable that the worms could ever have obtained leaves mr a c horner confirms this account as he has seen castings in the cellars of his house which is an old one at tonbridge but the best evidence known to me of worms subsisting for at least considerable periods of time solely on the organic matter contained in earth is afforded by some facts communicated to me by dr king near nice large castings abound in extraordinary numbers so that five or six were often found within the space of a square foot they consist of fine pale-coloured earth containing calcareous matter which after having passed through the bodies of worms and being dried coheres with considerable force i have reason to believe that these castings had been formed by species of pericata which have been naturalized here from the east footnote dr king gave me some worms collected near nice which as he believes had constructed these castings they were sent to m perrier who with great kindness examined and named them for me they consisted of parakeeta affinis a native of cochin china and of the philippines parakeeta luzonica a native of luzon in the philippines and parakeeta howlati which lives near calcutta m perrier informs me that species of parakeeta have been naturalized in the gardens near montpellier and in algiers before i had any reason to suspect that the tower-like castings from nice had been formed by worms not endemic in the country i was greatly surprised to see how closely they resembled castings sent to me from near calcutta where it is known that species of parakeeta abound End of footnote. they rise like towers see figure two with their summits often a little broader than their bases sometimes to a height of above three and often to a height of two and a half inches legend of figure two tower-like castings from near nice constructed of earth voided probably by a species of parakeeta of natural size copied from a photograph end of the legend the tallest of those which were measured was three point three inches in height and one inch in diameter a small cylindrical passage runs up the centre of each tower 
through which the worm ascends to eject the earth which it has swallowed, and thus to add to its height. A structure of this kind would not allow leaves being easily dragged from the surrounding ground into the burrows, and Dr. King, who looked carefully, never saw even a fragment of a leaf thus drawn in. Nor could any trace be discovered of the worms having crawled down the exterior surfaces of the towers in search of leaves, and, had they done so, tracks would almost certainly have been left on the upper part whilst it remained soft. It does not, however, follow that these worms do not draw leaves into their burrows during some other season of the year, at which time they would not build up their towers. From the several foregoing cases, it can hardly be doubted that worms swallow earth, not only for the sake of making their burrows, but for obtaining food. Henson, however, concludes from his analysis of mold that worms probably could not live on ordinary vegetable mold, though he admits that they might be nourished to some extent by leaf mold. Footnote. Zeitschrift für Wissenschaft Zoologique, B. 28. 1877 page 364 but we have seen that worms eagerly devour raw meat fat and dead worms an ordinary mold can hardly fail to contain many ova larvae and small living or dead creatures spores of cryptogamic plants and microcoxi such as those which give rise to saltpetre in these various organisms together with some cellulose from any leaves and roots not utterly decayed might well account for such large quantities of mold being swallowed by worms. It may be worth while here to recall the fact that certain species of utricularia, which grow in damp places in the tropics, possess bladders beautifully constructed for catching minute subterranean animals, and these traps would not have been developed unless many small animals inhabited such soil. The depth to which worms penetrate and the construction of their burrows Although worms usually live near the surface, yet they burrow to a considerable depth during long-continued dry weather and severe cold. In Scandinavia, according to Eisen, and in Scotland, according to Mr. Lindsay Carnegie, the burrows run down to a depth of from seven to eight feet. In North Germany, according to Hofmeister, from six to eight feet, but Henson says from three to six feet. This latter observer has seen worms frozen at a depth of one and a half feet beneath the surface. I have not myself had many opportunities for observation, but I have often met with worms at a depth of three to four feet. In a bed of fine sand overlying the chalk, which had never been disturbed, a worm was cut into two at fifty-five inches, and another was found here at Down in December, at the bottom of its burrow, at sixty-one inches beneath the surface. Lastly, in earth near an old Roman villa, which had not been disturbed for many centuries, a worm was met with at a depth of sixty-six inches, and this was in the middle of August. The burrows run down perpendicularly, or, more commonly, a little obliquely. They are said sometimes to branch, but as far as I have seen this does not occur, except in recently dug ground and near the surface. They are generally, or as I believe invariably, lined with a thin layer of fine dark-colored earth, voided by the worms so that they must at first be made a little wider than their ultimate diameter. I have seen several burrows in undisturbed sand, thus lined at a depth of four feet six inches, and others close to the surface, thus lined in recently dug ground. The walls of fresh burrows are often dotted with little globular pellets of voided earth, 
still soft and viscid, and these, as it appears, are spread out on all sides by the worm as it travels up or down its burrow. The lining thus formed becomes very compact and smooth when nearly dry, and closely fits the worm's body. The minute reflected bristles which project in rows on all sides from the body thus have excellent points of support, and the burrow is rendered well adapted for the rapid movement of the animal. The lining appears also to strengthen the walls, and perhaps saves the worm's body from being scratched. I think so, because several burrows which passed through a layer of sifted coal cinders, spread over turf to a thickness of one and one-half inch, had been thus lined to an unusual thickness. In this case, the worms, judging from the castings, had pushed the cinders away on all sides, and had not swallowed any of them. In another place, burrows similarly lined passed through a layer of coarse coal cinders, three and one-half inches in thickness. We thus see that the burrows are not mere excavations, but may rather be compared with tunnels lined with cement. The mouths of burrows are in addition often lined with leaves, and this is an instinct distinct from that of plugging them up, and does not appear to have been hitherto noticed. Many leaves of the scotch fir or pine, Pinus sylvestris, were given to worms kept in confinement in two pots, and when, after several weeks, the earth was carefully broken up, the upper parts of three oblique burrows were found surrounded for lengths of seven, four, and three and one-half inches with pine leaves, together with fragments of other leaves which had been given the worms as food. Glass beads and bits of tile, which had been strewn on the surface of the soil, were stuck into the interstices between the pine leaves, and these interstices were likewise plastered with viscid castings voided by the worms. The structures thus formed cohered so well that I succeeded in removing one with only a little earth adhering to it. It consisted of a slightly curved cylindrical case, the interior of which could be seen through holes in the sides and at either end. The pine leaves had all been drawn in by their bases, and the sharp points of the needles had been pressed into the lining of voided earth. Had this not been effectually done, the sharp points would have prevented the retreat of the worms into their burrows, and these structures would have resembled traps armed with converging points of wire, rendering the ingress of an animal easy and its egress difficult or impossible. The skill shown by these worms is noteworthy, and is the more remarkable, as the Scotch pine is not a native of this district. After having examined these burrows, made by worms in confinement, I looked at those in a flower-bed near some Scotch pines. These had all been plugged up in the ordinary manner with the leaves of this tree, drawn in for a length of from one to one and a half inch, but the mouths of many of them were likewise lined with them, mingled with fragments of other kinds of leaves, drawn in to a depth of four or five inches. Worms often remain, as formerly stated, for a long time close to the mouths of their burrows, apparently for warmth, and the basket-like structures formed of leaves would keep their bodies from coming into close contact with the cold, damp earth. That they habitually rested on the pine leaves was rendered probable by their clean and almost polished surfaces. The burrows which run far down into the ground generally, or at least often, terminate in a little enlargement or chamber. Here, according to Hofmeister, one or several worms pass the winter rolled up into a bowl. Mr. Lindsay Carnegie informed me 
1838, that he had examined many burrows over a stone quarry in Scotland, where the overlying boulder clay and mould had recently been cleared away, and a little vertical cliff thus left. In several cases, the same burrow was a little enlarged at two or three points one beneath the other, and all the burrows terminated in a rather large chamber, at a depth of seven or eight feet from the surface. These chambers contained many small sharp bits of stone and husks of flax seeds. They must also have contained living seeds, for on the following spring Mr. Carnegie saw grass plants sprouting out of some of the intersected chambers. I found at Abinger in Surrey two burrows terminating in small chambers at a depth of thirty-six and forty-one inches, and these were lined or paved with little pebbles, about as large as mustard seeds, and in one of the chambers there was a decayed oat grain with its husk. Henson, likewise, states that the bottoms of the burrows are lined with little stones, and where these could not be procured, seeds, apparently of the pear, had been used, as many as fifteen having been carried down into a single burrow, one of which had germinated. Footnote. Zeitschrift für Wissenschaft Zoologique, B. 28. 1877, page 356. End of footnote. We thus see how easily a botanist might be deceived, who wished to learn how long deeply buried seeds remained alive, if he were to collect the earth from a considerable depth, on the supposition that it could contain only seeds which had long lain buried. It is probable that the little stones, as well as the seeds, are carried down from the surface by being swallowed for a surprising number of glass beads, bits of tile, and of glass, were certainly thus carried down by worms kept in pots, but some may have been carried down within their mouths. The sole conjecture which I can form why worms line their winter quarters with little stones and seeds is to prevent their closely coiled-up bodies from coming into close contact with the surrounding cold soil, and such contact would perhaps interfere with their respiration, which is effected by the skin alone. A worm, after swallowing earth, whether for making its burrow or for food, soon comes to the surface to empty its body. The ejected earth is thoroughly mingled with the intestinal secretions, and is thus rendered viscid. After being dried, it sets hard. I have watched worms during the act of ejection, and when the earth was in a very liquid state, it was ejected in little spurts, and by a slow peristaltic movement when not so liquid. It is not cast indifferently on any side, but with some care, first on one, then on another, the tail being used almost like a trowel. When a worm comes to the surface to eject earth, the tail protrudes, but when it collects leaves, its head must protrude. Worms, therefore, must have the power of turning round in their closely fitting burrows, and this, as it appears to us, would be a difficult feat. As soon as a little heap has been formed, the worm apparently avoids, for the sake of safety, protruding its tail, and the earthy matter is forced up through the previously deposited soft mass. The mouth of the same burrow is used for this purpose for a considerable time. In the case of the tower-like castings, see figure 2, near Nice, and of the similar but still taller towers from Bengal, hereafter to be described and figured. A considerable degree of skill is exhibited in their construction. Dr. King also observed that the passage up these towers hardly ever ran in the same exact line 
with the underlying burrow, so that a thin cylindrical object, such as a holm of grass, could not be passed down the tower into the burrow, and this change of direction probably serves in some manner as protection. Worms do not always eject their castings on the surface of the ground. When they can find any cavity, as when burrowing in newly turned up earth, or between the stems of banked up plants, they deposit their castings in such places. So again, any hollow beneath a large stone lying on the surface of the ground is soon filled up with their castings. According to Henson, old burrows are habitually used for this purpose, but as far as my experience serves this is not the case, excepting with those near the surface in recently dug ground. I think that Henson may have been deceived by the walls of old burrows lined with black earth, having sunk in or collapsed, for black streaks are thus left, and these are conspicuous when passing through light-coloured soil, and might be mistaken for completely filled-up burrows. It is certain that old burrows collapse in the course of time, for, as we shall see in the next chapter, the fine earth voided by worms, if spread out uniformly, would form in many places, in the course of a year, a layer one-fifth of an inch in thickness, so that, at any rate, this large amount is not deposited within the old unused burrows. If the burrows did collapse, the whole ground would be first thickly riddled with holes, to a depth of about ten inches, and in fifty years a hollow, unsupported space, ten inches in depth, would be left. The holes, left by the decay of successively formed roots of trees and plants, must likewise collapse in the course of time. The burrows of worms run down perpendicularly, or a little obliquely, and where the soil is at all argillaceous, there is no difficulty in believing that the walls would slowly flow or slide inwards during very wet weather. When, however, the soil is sandy, or mingled with many small stones, it can hardly be viscous enough to flow inwards during even the wettest weather, but another agency may here come into play. After much rain the ground swells, and as it cannot expand laterally, the surface rises. During dry weather it shrinks again. For instance, a large flat stone laid on the surface of a field sank 3.33 millimeters whilst the weather was dry between May 9 and June 13, and rose 1.91 millimeters between September 7 and 19 of the same year, much rain having fallen during the latter part of this time. During frosts and thaws, the movements were twice as great. These observations were made by my son Horace, who will hereafter publish an account of the movements of this stone during successive wet and dry seasons, and of the effect of its being undermined by worms. Now when the ground swells, if it be penetrated by cylindrical holes, such as worm burrows, their walls will tend to yield, and be pressed inwards, and the yielding will be greater in the deeper parts, supposing the hole to be equally moistened, from the greater weight of the superincumbent soil which has to be raised than in the parts near the surface. When the ground dries, the walls will shrink a little, and the burrows will be a little enlarged. Their enlargement, however, through the lateral contraction of the ground will not be favoured, but rather opposed by the weight of the superincumbent soil. Distribution of Worms Earthworms are found in all parts of the world, and some of the genera have an enormous range. Footnote Perrier, Archive de Zoologie Experimentale, Volume 3, page 378, 1874. End of footnote.
they inhabit the most isolated islands they abound in iceland and are known to exist in the west indies st helena madagascar new caledonia and tahiti in the antarctic region worms from kerguelen land have been described by ray lancaster and i found them in the falkland islands how they reach such isolated islands is at present quite unknown they are easily killed by salt water and it does not appear probable that young worms or their egg capsules could be carried in earth adhering to the feet or beaks of land birds moreover kerguelen land is not now inhabited by any land bird in this volume we are chiefly concerned with the earth cast up by worms and i have gleaned a few facts on this subject with respect to distant lands worms throw up plenty of castings in the united states in venezuela castings probably ejected by species of urochita are common in the gardens and fields but not in the forests as i heard from dr ernst of caracas he collected one hundred and fifty six castings from the courtyard of his house having an area of two hundred square yards they varied in bulk from half a cubic centimetre to five cubic centimetres and were on average three cubic centimetres they were therefore of small size in comparison with those often found in england for six large castings from a field near my house averaged sixteen cubic centimetres several species of earthworms are common in st catharina in south brazil and fritz muller informs me quote, that in most parts of the forests and pasture lands the whole soil to a depth of a quarter of a metre looks as if it had passed repeatedly through the intestines of earthworms even where hardly any castings are to be seen on the surface End quote. a gigantic but very rare species is found there the burrows of which are sometimes even two centimetres or nearly four-fifths of an inch in diameter and which apparently penetrate the ground to a great depth in the dry climate of new south wales i hardly expected that worms would be common but dr g kreft of sydney to whom i applied after making inquiries from gardeners and others and from his own observations informs me that their castings abound he sent me some collected after heavy rain and they consisted of little pellets about point one five inch in diameter and the blackened sandy earth of which they were formed still cohered with considerable tenacity the late mr john scott of the botanic gardens near calcutta made an observation for me on worms living under the hot and humid climate of bengal the castings abound almost everywhere in jungles and in the open ground to a greater degree as he thinks than in england after the water has subsided from the flooded rice fields the whole surface very soon becomes studded with castings a fact which much surprised mr scott as he did not know how long worms could survive beneath water they cause much trouble in the botanic garden quote, for some of the finest of our lawns can be kept in anything like order only by being almost daily rolled if left undisturbed for a few days they become studded with large castings end quote these resemble those described as abounding near nice and they are probably the work of a species of parakeeta they stand up like towers with an open passage in the centre a figure of one of these castings from a photograph is here given legend figure three a tower-like casting probably ejected by a species of parakeeta from the botanic garden calcutta of natural size engraved from a photograph 
End of caption. The largest received by me was three and one-half inches in height, and one point three five inch in diameter. Another was only three-quarters of an inch in diameter, and two and three-quarter in height. In the following year, Mr. Scott measured several of the largest. One was six inches in height, and nearly one and one-half in diameter. Two others were five inches in height, and, respectively, two, and rather more, than two and a half inches in diameter. The average weight of the twenty-two castings sent to me was thirty-five grams, one and one-quarter ounce, and one of them weighed forty-four point eight grams, or two ounce. These castings were thrown up either in one night or in two. Where the ground in Bengal is dry, as under large trees, castings of a different kind are formed in vast numbers. These consist of little ovals or conical bodies, from about the one-twentieth, or rather above one-tenth, of an inch in length. They are obviously voided by a distinct species of worm. The period during which worms near Calcutta display such extraordinary activity lasts for only a little over two months, namely, during the cool season after the rains. At this time, they are generally found within about ten inches beneath the surface. During the hot season they burrow to a greater depth, and are then found coiled up and apparently hibernating. Mr. Scott has never seen them at a greater depth than two and a half feet, but has heard of their having been found at four feet. Within the forests, fresh castings may be found even during the hot season. The worms in the botanic garden, during the cool and dry season, draw many leaves and little sticks into the mouths of their burrows, like our English worms, but they rarely act in this manner during the rainy season. Mr. Scott saw worm castings on the lofty mountains of Sikkim in North India. In South India, Dr. King found, in one place, on the plateau of the Niljerus, at an elevation of 7,000 feet, quote, a good many castings, end quote, which are interesting for their great size. The worms which eject them are seen only during the wet season, and are reported to be from 12 to 15 inches in length, and as thick as a man's little finger. These castings were collected by Dr. King after a period of 110 days without any rain, and they must have been ejected either during the northeast or probably during the previous southwest monsoon, for their surfaces had suffered some disintegration, and they were penetrated by many fine roots. A drawing is given here, figure 4, of one which seems to have best retained its original size and appearance. Figure 4. A casting from the Nilgiri Mountains in South India, of natural size, engraved from a photograph. End of caption. Notwithstanding some loss from disintegration, five of the largest of these castings, after having been well sun-dried, weighed each, on an average, 89.5 grams, or above three ounces, and the largest weighed 123.14 grams, or four and one-third ounce, that is, above a quarter of a pound. The largest convolutions were rather more than one inch in diameter, but it is probable that they had subsided a little whilst soft, and that their diameters had thus been increased. Some had flowed so much that they now consisted of a pile of almost flat confluent cakes. All were formed of fine, rather light-colored earth, and were surprisingly hard and compact, owing no doubt to the animal matter by which the particles of earth had been cemented together. They did not disintegrate, 
even when left for some hours in water. Although they had been cast up on the surface of gravelly soil, they contained extremely few bits of rock, the largest of which was only 0.15 inch in diameter. Dr. King saw in Ceylon a worm about two feet in length and one-half inch in diameter, and he was told that it was a very common species during the wet season. These worms must throw up castings at least as large as those on the Nilgiri Mountains, but Dr. King saw none during his short visit to Ceylon. Sufficient facts have now been given, showing that worms do much work in bringing up fine earth to the surface in most or all parts of the world, and under the most different climates. End of chapter 2